The most important question ever asked in human history is found in the Gospel of Matthew. And it was asked by a very unlikely individual, a man who history knows as Pontius Pilate. And he asked this profound question in Matthew chapter 27, verse 22. And he said this, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? What shall I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? If you've ever looked at the Gospel of Matthew, the entire book focuses on this pinnacle question, what shall you do with Jesus? To actually help you appreciate this question, I would like to take a few minutes tonight on Good Friday to look at the events that all precede the asking of this extremely profound question. If you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Matthew chapter 27. And in Matthew 27, beginning in verse 1, we're going to find the scene that for the Jewish leadership, it was all but over. Peter had already denied Jesus two times. They had had several mock trials in the middle of the night. And all they needed now was an expedient death to this troublemaker, this itinerant rabbi known as Jesus, who some were calling the Messiah, the Christ himself. Now, just to help you understand, when you, when you look at the life of Jesus, God presents it to us in four gospel accounts. The first four books of the New Testament are called the, called the Gospels, and really, they function like a stereo effect, each one of them drawing different details to emphasize and to show you in totality what is taking place. And that is certainly true when we look at the trials of Jesus. And so, beginning in 27, verse 1, you're going to see that Jesus, the innocent one, he's rejected. And so now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. What had taken place is they had actually arrested Jesus and they had had several illegal trials. The first one actually takes place where they, uh, they bring him to the father-in-law of the high priest. He goes on, then the Sanhedrin makes sure that they have another trial, and eventually he ends up at Caiaphas' house. And you can actually see some of the details. And if you want to see explicitly why they were so upset with Jesus and what they were looking to do, all you have to do is look at Matthew 26, beginning in verse 63. But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest, the high priest over all the Jewish people, he said to him, to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus brings to mind Psalm 110, a messianic psalm, and he also speaks of Daniel chapter 7, which Daniel gives the prophecy that when the Son of God comes, he'll be coming on the clouds. He's saying, you are going to see me for who I really am. Well, when the high priest heard this, look at verse 65, then the high priest tore his robe, and he said, he has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard of the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, he deserves death. So when you come to Matthew chapter 27, verse 1, when morning came, it was actually illegal 
to have a criminal trial at night. So to have some sort of semblance, some sort of guise that this was actually all dealt officially early morning, perhaps even before the sun has even risen, they actually have this third trial for Jesus. And they all gather together and they all condemn him, condemn him. This one is guilty of death. And so verse 2, they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. We see in these first two verses that innocence was rejected. Christ came to his very own people and they wanted nothing to do with him. Well, beginning in verse 3, we're going to see that innocence is betrayed. Whether this is where it takes place chronologically or it is meant to show a contrast, Jesus, the innocent one, is put in contrast to Judas, the very one who betrays him. So beginning in verse 3, now then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. And so here we have Judas, one who had been selected by Jesus himself to follow him, to study under him, to learn from him who had first-hand intimate knowledge. In fact, it seems as if Judas may have been perceived by the others as the most trusted of all the apostles. And why, you'd say, well, why is that? Because he was entrusted with all the money. And yet, it is Judas, the one selected by Jesus, who now actually turns him over and contemns him. In fact, the text says he betrays him. And so Judas now sees that indeed he has condemned Jesus, who is innocent. He's obviously seen some of the effects of what has taken place, the abuse, the malignment. I don't know if Judas ever fully expected this would happen. It says that he has remorse. But I want you to make sure that you understand this isn't repentance. You know, if you ever get caught with something, you're like, oh, there's consequences, it's painful, I don't like this. Do you have remorse? Repentance has the idea that you turn 180 degrees. You literally turn from what you did, what you thought, and you turn to God and you go his ways. That's not what we have with Judas. And so he's, he's remorseful, and he had these 30 pieces of silver, this money that he was paid off. You know, it's kind of like he just bought into the scheme. You know, he had already had all the money, but he, for 30 pieces of silver, they were given to him if he would just simply betray Jesus. And like all sin... You think it's going to greatly satisfy and bring some sort of great joy to your life, a sense of accomplishment, a sense of well-being, maybe security. All it led to was regret. In fact, the Jewish leadership wanted nothing to do with him once they paid, off, paid him off. And so he said, verse 4, he's saying, saying, you know what? I feel remorse. I want to return the 30 pieces of silver. I don't want it. I don't want it in my hands. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. That should have been another clue. Listen, he's innocent. I know. I've lived with him. I've sinned. But they said, we have no use of you for you now. What is that to us? See to that yourself. It was like this money in Judas's hand, these 30 pieces of silver, like hot coals. And he just wanted to get rid of them. He wanted to give them back. Perhaps he understood that uh, to take money to actually accuse someone was actually seen as a, a violation of the law to condemn an innocent person. And so he thought, I understand that I'm going to be cursed. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 25 says, 
Cursed is he who accepts a bribe to strike down an innocent person. And Judas most certainly would have known that. And so he thinks, like, perhaps if I just get rid of the coins, I will get rid of the curse. And so he tries to give it back. Scribes and the chief priests are like, we don't want your money. We want actually nothing to do with you. And so notice what he does. And he, verse 5, he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary. So he makes his way to the temple mount. And so you have the temple itself. Inside, and the deepest part of the inside is the Holy of Holies. Then the area in front of that is the sanctuary, the holy place. Only, only the priests could go in there. And so he takes that money and he throws it in there because he's forcing Jewish leadership to go and retrieve it because they would be the only ones who would ever be able to do such a thing. And so the chief priests, they, they are forced to get this money. And so he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. He was so overcome by what he had done. He didn't realize he could have turned to Jesus even in this time. And he commits suicide. And the chief priests, they took the pieces of silver and said, now notice this. It is not lawful to put them into the temple's treasury since it is the price of blood. Isn't this interesting? They had been completely dismissing the law up until this point, running their illegal trials. But it's so, they were super selective. Well, on this, hey, we can't, remember, this is breaking a law if we take this money and put it within the treasury of the temple. And so they conferred together. How are we going to handle the situation with the money? And so this is what they did. They bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. And for this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And this is fascinating. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them to the potter's field as the Lord directed me. This is absolutely fascinating because Zechariah prophesied that this is exactly what would happen to Messiah. They should have known by even the 30 pieces of silver but combination with the potter's field and, and looking at Jeremiah, he, they're literally fulfilling prophecies. And yet they don't see it, nor do they seem to care. And so they go and they have now taken innocence and seen him betrayed. But I want you to see this beginning in verse 11. Now we see innocence declared. So their whole goal is to bring this Jesus and to bring him to Pilate because they want him put to death. See, the Jewish leadership no longer had the ability to have someone put to death. The Romans said, no, we're going to let you kind of govern on matters of Jewish law, but the death penalty belongs to us. And so beginning in verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor was questioning him. The governor, as we have seen, is, is Pilate. Let me give you a little background so you understand who Pilate is. Pilate was the governor of Judea from AD 26 to AD 36. And he was hated by the Jewish people and for just for really good causes. Uh, for instance, um, the Roman governor of Judea was considered by Philo, who was a um, Jewish philosopher. He describes him this way, quote, regarding Pilate, he was one who could be bribed. He was violent. He, he had, was involved in thefts, assaults. 
his abusive behavior, and his frequent executions of untried prisoners, and his endless savage ferocity. He was known to actually put criminals, quote-unquote criminals, to death without even a trial. He was a vicious man. Josephus actually uh, gives us an account of when Pilate actually took over the governorship. You have to understand that Israel's on the far side of the Roman Empire. Israel itself had been kind of like a thorn in the side of Rome. There were these uprisings, these rebellion. You needed a strong leader, and yet one who could deal with these Jewish fanatics who would rebel and, and who would be willing to fight to the death. Josephus records when Pilate took over as governor, there had been a long-standing policy because the Jews never wanted to violate the Ten Commandments, and especially the Second Commandment, that there was to be no idolatrous image of a god or of God. And so, though in all the rest of the Roman Empire they would have standards with the, the head or the picture of Caesar on it, in Jerusalem, the Romans had a policy not to do that because it infuriated the Jewish people. Well, when Pilate takes over, he decides, you know what? There's a new sheriff in town, and we're going to do things differently now. Shortly after he takes over, under the cover of darkness, he has his Roman soldiers march in with all of these images of Caesar. And they're on these standards, and he has them posted throughout the whole city. When all of Jerusalem wakes up, they are horrified what they see. And there's this clear violation of this understanding. They actually, the Jewish leadership, goes to Pilate and tells them, every single one of us will fight to the death until you remove these. Pilate, just getting started, not wanting to create a stir, not wanting to begin his, his whole leader uh, term of leadership but with a revolt on his hand, he finally actually succumbs and has them pulled out. Pilate himself was always was starting to grow under question by the Roman Senate. And even the Caesar, Tiberius Caesar, was questioning whether Pilate really was the right man. For Pilate, he was about one bad decision from getting fired. And so they bring Jesus before the governor. This governor who had a kind of a history of condemning people without even a trial. And that's exactly what the Jewish leadership wants. Before the city has started, because it is Passover, all of Israel has gathered to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. It would be so good if, if, Herod, excuse me, if Pilate simply executes Jesus first thing in the morning and we're done with this. And so they're standing before the governor. This is likely taking place at the praetorium. Uh, Herod likely had been summoned, awoke. He's sleeping all of a sudden. Now he's awake. They bring him to the praetorium. It's first thing in the morning. The sun is barely coming up. And here you have the Jewish leadership, and they have brought Jesus, and he is bound. It is clear that he has suffered quite a bit of abuse. He's likely bleeding. Maybe his eyes are swollen shut. And here they have him, Jesus, standing in front of him. The Jewish leadership would not actually go in to Herod's house. They wouldn't even go to the praetorium because they had a part of their tradition is that they saw themselves as unclean ceremonially if they went into the house of a Gentile. It's not in the law, but it is in their tradition. And so they're making a big case, but no, we're not going to come in, but rather we're going to stand outside, all of us. And all of this works into their favor when they see that Pilate now is standing, and he's got Jesus, and they're saying, and he's questioning them, saying, Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? 
verse 11, and Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And so he's listening. Jesus affirms that he is a king. And while he was saying he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he did not answer. So you have all these accusations that are coming. Now, you need to understand what was the crime? What was what was it that they were trying to kill Jesus for? Remember? Blasphemy. Because he said that he was God, the Messiah. Well, to claim that you are the Christ, why, to claim that you're God, why, for the Romans, that's not quite worthy of death. And the Jewish leadership knew this. So what they needed to do was change it a little bit. To have a different accusation, one that actually Rome would take serious, serious enough to realize that if this is true, this individual needs to be executed. And you see these accusations taking place. Luke chapter 23, verse 2 actually spells it out. These are the three accusations that the Jewish leadership makes to the governor. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation. That's not going to get you executed. But these next two will. Forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Well, yeah, you got insurrection, sedition, and failure to pay taxes. These, Pilate simply couldn't ignore. This is one of the charges that they had with their own mock trial, but this is now what they want Jesus tried for with Pilate himself. Now, it's very interesting on the one on taxes. The Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, uh, they actually hated the idea of paying taxes, and Pilate knew it. In fact, remember, they actually tried to get Jesus killed over this very same issue. Remember? They said, hey, uh, Jesus, should, should, should we be paying taxes to Caesar or not? Remember? And what did he say? Listen. You render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, but to God that which is God's. Pilate probably certainly saw through this. They understood that Jesus, no way, he was never told them not to pay taxes. In fact, he told them to do it. And so you have this situation where they're bringing these charges. And he's asking, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, I, I am. I am their leader. Well, verse, look at verse 13. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? You know, this is, a, this is rather fascinating. They're, they're throwing all these accusations but in verse 14, he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. You know, Pilate had seen thousands of criminals, people brought before him. Some that were innocent, some that were guilty. All of them would plead for their life, would fight the accusations. But he'd never seen anyone like Jesus. Certainly he knew of Jesus' popularity. But when he sees these accusations and hears them, and he sees Jesus not doing anything in response, but simply remaining silent, why, he was amazed. And by the way, Jesus is always fulfilling the will of the Father. This was prophesied regarding the Messiah, Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears. So he did not open his mouth. Now, why didn't Pilate just send everybody home? Why didn't he just say, eh, I don't feel like it today? Why didn't he just 
say, Jesus, you're done. We're, we're going to, there's no case here. You see, he was already under suspicion of Rome. Now you have all the Jewish leadership. And they are accusing Jesus of insurrection of Rome and accusing him of spreading this message of not paying taxes. This is something he simply couldn't ignore. And so Pilate himself is like caught. He doesn't probably want to do anything with Jesus, but he can't, he can't deny, he can't actually just disregard these charges that are being brought. And so we find the situation where they're throwing these accusations and Pilate is standing there. It's first thing in the morning. He probably hasn't had breakfast, certainly hadn't had a chance to go to Starbucks. And he's like, I don't want to deal with this. And as we listen to the accusations, Luke records that in Luke 23, verse 5, someone yells out, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. When he heard Galilee, all of a sudden he found the way out. You see, Pilate oversaw Judea, but there was Herod Antipas who actually oversaw, though was the governor, in the northern section of Galilee. When he heard that, and knowing that Herod Antipas was in Jerusalem as well to watch uh, all the festivities of the Passover, he all of a sudden had the out. And so he, he, did I hear you say Galilee? And so he had him sent to Herod. And you can find all of this is recorded in Luke 23. He sends him to Herod. Herod Antipas, just to give you a little background, Herod the Great, remember Herod the Great, the guy who actually builds the temple? He's the one who slaughters all the babies. Remember when Jesus is born? Herod Antipas is Herod the Great's son. And Herod Antipas himself was ruthless, a killer. In fact, it, he was the guy who had John the Baptist beheaded. Remember, John the Baptist said, you know how you're married to your brother's wife? Well, that's wrong, and that's sinful. Well, he didn't take too kindly of anybody telling him what to do and what not to do. And eventually, remember the whole little party with the wife and all this? And she says, I want him dead. And he kills John the Baptist. This is Herod. Now, Herod Antipas had wanted to see Jesus. He had heard about it, the miracles. He had wanted to see him, and now it was his great chance. You've got to think that, okay, there's no TV, there's no internet, so he doesn't really know what Jesus looks like. If you, He was fully aware of the miracles, and that's why he wanted to see him. But when Jesus is now paraded after all the beating and all the, the weariness of his body and having not slept now the entire night, he must have been deeply disappointed. He coaxes Jesus to do a miracle. Come on now. Here's your great chance. I'm here. I'm paying attention. And Jesus does nothing. After mocking him, jeering him, they can't get him to do anything. What they do is they just abuse him. And just to further the insult, they put a beautiful royal like cape on him. And Herod finds nothing wrong with him and sends him back to Pilate. Pilate's thinking this is all over. I'm out of it. Herod can deal with it. I hate Herod anyway. Really interesting. Scriptures actually record that there was great animosity. It says this, that after Herod had sent Jesus back, it says that he actually, in Luke 23, verse 12, now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day. For before they had been enemies with each other. It was like this unholy alliance. They had a friendship based on one thing, a hatred for Christ. So look at back now at our text in verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. So here's Pilate. 
And now he's got this, he's got Jesus. The problem is back. Herod didn't deal with it. And now he's forced to. And now we have some background information about a custom that the Romans had done to kind of appease the Jewish people. And that custom is found here in verse 15. They were to, they would release to the, for the people any prisoner whom they wanted. Now, wasn't, how this worked is that the Romans actually selected certain prisoners like, could we let this guy go and could we catch him again? Or, you know, is he going to be a problem? Has he been retrained? And they would select certain prisoners. They would give the names and the Jewish leadership would pick one of them. And like, all right, you can have him back. It's our gift, Rome's gift to you. Well, in this case, though, Pilate is thinking, I have got to get out of this. And so he's, they're, they're telling you about this custom. And, and so what takes place here is, at verse 16, at that time they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Very interesting name. His name literally is translated son of the father or son of a father. Many scholars think that to have a name like Barabbas, why his dad may have been a rabbi or some very influential Jewish leader. Son of the father, but Barabbas, why he was a bad guy. In fact, Luke and John record that he is a murderer, a seditionist, and he was a robber. I'm sure most of the Jewish people were afraid of him. You know, the Jewish people, the leadership is like, hey, you got to deal with Jesus because he's an insurrectionist telling you not to pay taxes, saying that he's a king, trying to lead a revolt. Well, here's a guy who really did. And so Pilate's got it. Pilate is a smart man. And he's like, I'm not giving you a choice. I'm not going to pick a bunch of people. I'm going to give you two choices. And look at this. So we've got Barabbas, this guy who is greatly despised. And you've got Jesus. And so, so look at this, verse 17. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is, by the way, called the Messiah, the Christ. Which one do you want? And so Pilate's thinking, good, I'm going to get out of this. There is no way they're going to want Barabbas back. And here's this Jesus. Jesus, a week ago, was really popular. They're waving palm branches. He's riding in on his donkey. People are calling out, Hosanna. Pilate's all aware of this. He's thinking, obviously. And the crowd is starting to gather. Remember, the whole plan of kind of getting Jesus killed first thing in the morning, well, that's kind of going away. All the city, city is being stirred. They're waking up. And they're like, there's, a, there's commotion going on in the praetorium. They got Jesus. Jesus is with Pilate. The, the chief priest, man, they are really upset. We have never seen them so upset. They're... There's everybody starting to gather. And he's, Pilate's probably thinking, this is probably playing in my favor because some of you same ones were just calling out Hosanna and waving palm branches. You're going to pick this Jesus, and even Pilate says, who is called the Christ. He is the epitome of what you say your religion is all about. So who are you going to pick? And he knows, verse 18, for he knew that because of envy, and I want you to make sure you see that, Because of envy, they handed him over. They knew, he knew, who Jesus is. And so he's putting before them this notorious prisoner. Now, here's something that's rather fascinating. In the middle of this, when all this is going on, all of a sudden, uh, Pilate gets a text from his wife. Look at this. Look at verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message. Do you see that? 
It's right there in the text. Okay, now, it probably, for some of you who are young, they didn't have to have cell phones back then. That's actually a recent invention. This is likely a note that came. But look at this. He receives a note from his wife in the midst of all of what is going on. Have, and in this note says this, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. For the Romans, they viewed dreams as omens. And they would, when Pilate heard this, he would be fearful. For here's his wife, who felt that it was so important that he received this message, has him interrupted in perhaps the biggest case he has ever faced his entire life. you got the whole city now kind of gathering. And she goes, but he must know. He must know about this dream. i got to warn him, you have nothing to do with this man, for he is righteous. And so he has it right here in black and white, in his hand, in a paper. He's looking at that, he's looking at Jesus, and he's looking at the crowd, and he is in the crucible. And so he's got this note, he sees what's going on. In verse 20, But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. He's thinking they're going to go for Barabbas. They now say, no, Jesus. And notice what's going on. The chief priests and the elders... They're manipulative. They're so deceitful. Their heart is so far from God, and they're stirring up the crowd, ask for Barabbas, and ask for Jesus to be killed. What kind of leadership is that? And so they're going, and all Pilate is hearing is Barabbas, and kill Jesus. And the governor said to them, all right, make a decision. I've got to end this now, because this is getting out of hand. Verse 21, but the governor said to them, which of the two do you want for me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. And then Pilate asked the ultimate question. The most important question ever asked in history. Verse 22. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? You want Barabbas? Well, what exactly are we supposed to do with this with Jesus? He's called the Christ. I know who he is, and so do you. What are we going to do with him? And they all said, crucify him. The Greek actually says, the tense is that they they kept just saying it, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. You know, like you go to a game and people are just kind of in that little mantra and they get everybody yelling and screaming the same sort of cheer. That's what they're doing. What do you do with Jesus who's called the Christ? They say, just crucify him, crucify. Pilate can't believe what he's hearing. In verse 23, he said, why? Why would we do that? What evil has he done? The answer, none. Perfectly righteous. He's done nothing deserving of death. He's actually never sinned. They don't have an answer to a question like that. But they just kept shouting all the more. You see the crowd in this frenzy. You want to see what mob mentality looks like? This is what it looks like. You see it in our country? You see it in the text. And they just kept shouting all the more. Logic is out. Reason is out. What's right, what's wrong, that's out. No, crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. You see, they didn't want Jesus. Jesus Jesus wasn't their kind of Messiah. Jesus called for a life of devotion to the one true God. They wanted an economic or a political or a military messiah. 
They didn't want a, a Messiah who's calling for repentance and, and a change of heart and relationship with God and who didn't seem to be overly concerned about overthrowing Rome. By the way, Jesus' teaching confronted their lifestyle. His demands were too hard. His truth was too narrow. It is the same reasons why people reject Jesus' day. That's nonsense. What he's asking for, I don't want to do that because I'm my own God and I like to do things my way. They didn't want Jesus and they certainly wouldn't want him to be their Messiah. All they wanted was him crucified. And so we see his innocence declared. And then beginning in verse 24, we see innocence condemned. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. What he's doing is literally just showing, listen, I want nothing to do with this. But this is what I want you to see. Verse 25, and all the people said, that's fine, Pilate. His blood shall be on us and on our children. You see, what they're doing is literally inviting divine wrath upon themselves. It, to say someone's blood is upon you was an idiom to denote culpability. And they're like, we're fine with being guilty for seeing this Jesus, who is called the Christ, put to death. He washes his hands, and all the people said, His blood be on us and on our children. And then verse 26, Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. Perhaps Pilate is thinking that, you know, you got a real thirst for blood. How about I watch, let you watch Jesus being scourged, and maybe that'll satisfy your bloodlust. And we can all be done with this and go on with the Passover. The scourge, they would take a guy and they would tie him to a pole, literally almost like suspend him. And then they had these trained soldiers that are called lictors. They have like a stick and they have leather straps and on the end they have bone or metal. And let me assure you, these guys were trained slow-death killers. They knew what they were doing. And they'd literally take a man apart. A lot of these people that were, were actually scourged like this died. Some died from the, the sheer shock of it. Sometimes they just ripped and shredded these people to, apart right there. So Pilate has this done, thinking that, that ought to resolve their blood issues that they want. And so they watch him being scourged. He releases this murderer and robber. I'm sure you're afraid of him, Barabbas. He's running around in the crowd. But this, friends, is the picture of the gospel. After Jesus is scourged, they handed him over to be crucified. You see, Pilate is substituting innocent Jesus for guilty Barabbas. It is a picture of substitutionary atonement. You see, friends, this is the gospel. When you see yourself for who you really are, you know that you're sinful. Sure, you try to act decent at different times, but you know your heart, you know your attitudes, you know your mindset toward God, you know how often you've tried to live life apart from God. You are guilty. But there is an innocent one who has died for us. And divine justice has been fulfilled. For Jesus, our substitute, took all of our sins upon himself. He bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we simply will be released from the penalty of death. So why, why would Jesus, the innocent one, take this journey to the cross. I will leave you with four reasons. And I'd like you to think about them. One, to suffer in our place. 
Jesus suffers so you and I do not. And he dies in our place. Um, let me give you a second. Why does Jesus do this? To secure our salvation. Like Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Let me give you another reason. Jesus endured all this to strengthen our love for him. The reason that these details are recorded is meant to evoke depth of devotion and love for the Savior. So you will get away from a superficial faith, a Jesus is my best friend, help me out when I'm in a jam kind of situation, to a heart that is deeply devoted, that truly loves Christ. Because every time you come to the Gospels, you're confronted with the depth of this kind of love. And let me give you one other reason. The reason that Jesus took this journey to the cross is to show us how to persevere. Peter said it this way, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile his return, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You see, friends, it comes down to this. The innocent one was condemned to death, so guilty ones like you and me, we might truly live. And so the question that Pilate asked, the ultimate question, I will ask to you. So what will you do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? Will you turn from him? Or will you trust him with everything you have?